So this week we're starting a new series on the church, and what we wanted to do is piggyback off Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Christ and the, Christ and the church is really what we're talking about when we're talking about husband and wife. When we talk about the husband and wife, two becoming one flesh, in reality we're shining a light on the truth of Jesus and his bride being united. We are, are united in Christ. And so there is this, Jesus is our head, and then there is this real union where we're united to our head. And so we, we're using that as the diving board, jumping off into five weeks about the church. And in week one, we wanted to simply talk about the scriptures, sola scriptura, because every single thing we do here from week in, week out, depends on the scriptures being true. We as believers in Jesus believe in absolute truth, that the Bible has, it speaks, and what it says is true, and it's right. It's profitable for us, which is where we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But for everything that we do and talk about the next four weeks, we have to be certain that it comes from something that is accurate and true and right in the very words of God, because then we can discover what does the scriptures, what does God prescribe for his people to do? So this right here, coming together on a Sunday morning, is, it's prescribed in the scriptures. It tells us to do this. Don't neglect the assembly. Do not forsake the gathering of the assembly. This is don't, don't, don't forsake and just go off and do Jesus in me. We gather because the scriptures tell us to. We pray because the scriptures tell us to. We receive communion because the scriptures tell us to. We talk about the gospel of Jesus all the time because the scriptures tell us to. And we're growing in this. The, the more and more we go. So we're always, always learning and growing, about, but the scriptures have spoken. God has spoken in his word. So we've got to be firm on that before we go forward. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. And the big question this week uh, is this. Is there a real and absolute truth beyond even a scientific truth? Most everybody in here would agree that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Right? Okay, but is there actual moral truth beyond simple scientific truth? 2 plus 2 equals 4. Yes, we agree, although some would question that in our world today. Um, but is there moral truth, something that is beyond just your dictation of truth? Is there something that's true for me and true for you and true for uh, Canada and true for Mexico and true, true for Europe, Europe and true for Africa and true for all of Asia and, and true for the few people that live in Antarctica uh, and Australia? Okay? Is there a truth that's universal and we, as Christians, believe, yes, there is. Truth is not to be found within. Truth is true externally. And when a culture loses a shared truth, you lose all identity. Uh, when, in fact, Christians lose a shared truth, uh, all of a sudden, everybody becomes their own God because there is no shared truth, the reality that dictates itself to us. We all just get to be self-determiners of truth. So whatever feels right to me, that's what I do. And very much we live in a culture and a world that believes that. Truth is found within. And then we don't judge each other for saying truth is found outside, or excuse me, truth is found within. In fact, the only thing we judge anymore and anybody for is saying that there is a moral truth that goes beyond the internal self. Because we're okay with you saying even, well, you can believe that, but don't tell everybody else that there's a truth that goes beyond them. It's like the only thing wrong in our society right now is saying that there's a truth for you. No, there's a truth for me, our world says, but don't tell me there's a truth for you or for us or for the world and Christians say, I'm sorry, God has spoken to us in Christ, and we believe that there is a truth for everyone. And so that's what we're talking about today, truth. I want to show a little video and, uh, to show the problem at hand, but then I want to show, as you're watching this video, you're going to feel how ridiculous the video is, but then I want, us to sh I want to show us all in this room how we're very much like these people. 
how their thought system is not too far from some of our own thought systems. So if you would, go ahead and play that, Cody. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason you need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're 6'5". If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong, like, that's wrong to believe in it, because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six-foot-five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six-foot-five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you're six foot five, or Chinese, or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a 5'9 white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman. But clearly it is. Why? 
What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? Okay, did you catch that? He said, what does it say about our society? And what does it say about our ability to answer questions that actually are difficult? Okay? Now, I want us to see a little bit of how the typical thinking of even many people within the evangelical church is very similar with that line of thinking. It may not be at, at, to its ex extreme point, but it's very, very similar. Because before we write them off, just say, oh my goodness, how silly is that? Which it is, right? Like, you watch that and you're just like, what? Where is this? You know, like, who thinks like this? You know, how did it get to this point? And, you know, you can kind of trace that kind of line of thinking back to, you know, the 60s. Some people in here can remember the 60s um, and then how things have progressed over the years. Um, you know, do whichever, whatever you want to do. Be whatever you want to be. Uh, you can do anything you put your mind to. Those sorts of thoughts, you know, do what you love. And, and there's, you know, elements of truth and all of that. But in the end, you get to this point where it's just like nobody tells anything or anybody about anything. And so how do we then in the church fall into the same sort of trap? We do the same thing if the foundation for what we believe is this. Well, it seems to me God is like this. It feels like to me that God is like that. It seems to me that this is what God is like. It's the exact same line of thinking. Even if your thinking is correct biblically, if that's your foundation for why you believe what you believe, what feels right to you, or what you think, it is the exact same line of thinking that these students displayed. It's the exact same line of thinking. And I, I have talked to countless dozens of believers whose standard for what they believe is what feels right to them. That's not what, that's, that Bible says that, but that's not the God that I know. You heard that line of thinking before? That's not the God that I know. It's like, well, isn't the God you know the God of the Scriptures? Like, or no. What feels right to me? Okay, here's some other lines of thinking that are very, very similar. My dad says, my mom says, and we do, as we talk about here in a few weeks, we're going to talk about uh, honoring and respecting parents. I'm not speaking of honoring, dishonoring and disrespecting parents, so please hear me. But if your foundation for what you believe is, my dad says, or my mom says, or my grandma says, or my grandpa says, or my professor says, or my teacher says, or even my pastor says, your foundation for truth is in a faulty place. Parents, let me ask you, is it in the realm of possibility that you may be wrong on some of your thinking and some of the things that you have taught your children? I know that I'm going to teach my son some wrong things. I don't want to. But there's going to be some things I just get wrong as a parent. And hopefully I actually believe that. Because, you know, you're like a parent superhero when your kids are young. You know, and like, I, I can tell you all the ways to parent a teenager right now when my son's like one. You know? And uh, so you, everybody kind of gets the comedy in that. But, okay, I'm going to teach my son some wrong things. I, I, I don't know. I always want to teach him the right things. I, I'm just, but I'm human. Okay, has there ever been, is it in the realm of possibility that a grandparent or a professor or a teacher or a pastor has taught some wrong things? Is it in the realm of possibility? Even genuine, you know, good-hearted, want to teach the truth, even passionately saying, you know, what I believe is what the Bible says. That's what everybody says, even heretics. 
Okay, the Scriptures are our ultimate authority, but any time we appeal to any other authority outside the Scriptures as being the why, we believe, the why of, of what we believe and why we do the things that we do, we're following the same string of thought. We may laugh at these people like crazy, but we're doing the exact same thing. Because you might see the logical similarities. It just didn't feel right. Okay, well, that's the exact same. They're basing what they think and what they believe on what feels right to them. So people in this room, off, here and churches all over, we have got to shatter that with the truth of God's Word. We don't want to approach truth as if it's something that I just get to determine what I feel like truth is. Oh, it just seems like to me, right to me. Or the Bible makes me uncomfortable, so I'm going to make up a God that makes me feel comfortable. And that happens all the time. So we need to let that be shattered and walk into the truth of the Scriptures. Sola Scriptura is the title of today. Let me define Sola Scriptura. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, primarily just looking at those two verses. So go ahead and flip there. And I want to define Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura is one of five solas within the Reformation. And we're not even going to be considering or thinking about that a whole lot. Uh, but I do want to define what Sola Scriptura means. And, and in a time of misplaced authority, and of a time when... When, when truth was being questioned, some reformers uh, discovered over and over again that down through the history of the church, um, it is, uh, the, the people of God had been writing about the Word of God being the ultimate authority. And there was all these different debates about where does authority come from. And so some uh, have said that there are authorities outside of the Bible. And then uh, Sola Scriptura, the Protestant reformers, came and said, no, there is authorities outside of the Bible, but they're all subject to what the Bible says. There are all sorts of authorities out here that we should listen to and submit to. But they are all subject to and sit under God's Word. So this is what Sola Scriptura means defined. Two definitions that are very similar because I want you to see some of the continuities between how some people define Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura simply means that all, that, that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. It is not a claim that all truth of every kind is found in Scripture. It comes from John MacArthur. One other definition, the Scriptures are the supreme authority in all matters of doctrine and practice. So all matters of doctrine and practice, what we do as an individual and as a church has to be submitted to the highest authority. This is where tradition, we don't just, we don't, uh, as a church, well, we do things because this is how we do things. Okay, we will always want to question that and say, are we doing things biblically? So, a doctrine of practice, Sola Scriptura does not, deny, does not deny that other authorities govern Christian life and devotion, but sees them as all subordinate to and corrected by the written Word of God. Does that make sense? So, this is not a denial of other authorities. Okay? I'm under authority, both by my elders and pastors of the church and you guys. If you guys say, Jared, you're teaching false teaching, and you bring that to Andy and, and Russ, and they agree, then I sit under that, and I should repent and correct the way I'm teaching the Bible. Okay, We all sit under authority, but we sit under the highest form of authority, the Bible. In fact, we've seen two ways in which truth comes into this world. Two ways in which truth comes into this world, primarily. Uh, actually, we could put a third way. There is what's called general revelation. God has generally revealed himself in this world. So the heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist says. We look to the heavens and we can see whoever created this world, we can see, one, that there is a creator. We look at matter. It's like God pulled a rabbit out of a hat, but without having a rabbit and a hat. Okay? That's R.C. Sproul. Pulls a rabbit out of a hat without having a rabbit or a hat. 
God speaks, things exist. We can, out of metal, vinyl, whatever, some little bit of foam, uh, humans can create and, and build this chair somehow. I don't know how, but God can build a chair out of nothing. And He can create humans, and He can create feelings, and He can create emotion and love, and He can create um, uh, like animals, the animal kingdom. He can create all just by speaking it, something out of nothing. Me, working with my hands out of something, can't create anything. I just create a bigger mess. And that's with something. God creates beauty, even that what we see in this world is fallen, and it's still beautiful in so many ways. God creates something beautiful out of nothing. Okay, this is God. This is God. So, general revelation. And then we see in truth, we see truth that's bigger than ourselves and what we get to dictate by uh, the truth. Jesus defines himself as the truth. He comes. God has come. Jesus came. He revealed himself. God has spoken. We have said all sorts of words as humans. We have uh, limitations to our abilities and our language, even uh, in our ability to say what this next week is going to look like. We can say, here's what I'm going to do on Tuesday. And very rarely does Tuesday uh, end up looking like what we say Tuesday is going to look like on Sunday. We don't have the ability to dictate what tomorrow holds or to say what tomorrow holds. Our words are feeble, but God's words are powerful and they're never wrong and they create and they're big. So God has spoken. He has sent his son into the world and to declared what truth is. In fact, in John chapter 1 verse 14, we see this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's word, Jesus the Word, the great Logos, comes and He shows us what God is like. He is the exact representation of God, God in the flesh. Jesus comes as the, the Word and, de and declares to us what truth is. He supernaturally breaks into this world, the very world He created that was created by Him and for Him, and He shows up as a baby and grows up as the perfect God-man, and He speaks. And in uh, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, the truth, that's important. The truth and the life. We see that God has come in Christ. Jesus came. We have general revelation. Then we have Jesus. And then we have the rest of the Bible. And here's what we're going to do real quick as we look into... Let's just read it. Go ahead and turn if you're there. I hope you already said that. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verse 16 and 17. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look at what Jesus, the Word, the way, the truth, and the life, what Jesus declares Himself to be, we're going to look at what Jesus believed about the Bible. Okay? What did He actually say about the Old Testament Scriptures? And that's going to be important because if we say, like many people in the world, you even reject Jesus as Lord and say Jesus is a great teacher, we want to actually say, okay, well, what does Jesus teach? And do we agree with that or not? What does he think about God's Word? Okay, and then we're going to look more specifically at the Word. So verse uh, 16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Keep on in, in verse 17. That the man of God may be, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, it starts off with two words. Verse 16, all Scripture. Okay, all Scripture. We have to ask the question, what does that mean? Okay, this is Paul talking about Scripture. What does all Scripture mean? I want you, if you want to, to explore this further. On Facebook, I've put several links, I think four links this morning on our Facebook page. Uh, I put, and those are two uh, different books that you can read. 
about the reliability of the Bible. We're not going to get into historical reliability of the Bible this morning and the manuscript and manuscript evidences. Uh, there's a way to study um, ancient literature um, in a historical and critical way, and people have disagreed on the exact ins and outs of that over the years. But the scriptures, I'll say this, after uh, several hundred years of, of uh, critical thinking about the scriptures and historical work done, the scriptures still hold hold true. Uh, they, they have held, the manuscripts themselves have held up to the, the highest forms of criticism that the world can throw at it, and, and we still have credible answers back to the questions that come. And so on the Facebook page, you can actually look and follow those links and purchase. There's a couple really accessible books that I linked into uh, on there and a couple websites and, and articles and stuff like that. So if you want to get into the actual manuscript evidences um, uh, testifying to the scriptures being true and reliable historically, you can do that if you would like. But I want us to, now that I've said that, look at what Jesus said about the scriptures. Here's what I mean. Jesus saying that he is the way and the truth and the life. If he is the truth and life, if he is who he says he is, then we need to listen to what he says about the scriptures. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, we want to make sure that our view of the scriptures line up with Jesus' view of the scriptures. We don't want a different understanding of the Bible than Jesus had himself, correct? So as we look to Jesus, we want to say, okay, Jesus, what did you have to say about the Old Testament? Did you ever call it into question? Did you ever call, did Jesus ever call historical arguments into question, did, or historical events into question? Did he ever look to God's Word and just kind of say, eh, it doesn't really matter? What was his posture toward the Bible? Well, we can say this and see this very clearly. Jesus never questioned the reliability of the Old Testament. He always retreated the Old Testament as the very words of God. In fact, I do actually want you to flip over to Matthew 22, verse 31, and see this really interesting little verse, Matthew 22, verse 31. 22:31. And here's what Jesus says to a group of, a group of hearers. Then Jesus said to them, okay, they said the first, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors, wait a minute, am I in the right place? 2231. Um, I think I put down the wrong reference here. Well, that's a bummer. That was a really good verse. Yeah. No. Oh, I'm, I'm in 21. I'm sorry. 2231. There we go. That's it. All right. I'm there. And as for you, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? You catch that? Have you not read what was said to you by God? Jesus believed the written word to be the audible word of his Father. He believed what was read in the Scriptures was the very words of God. It wasn't simple historical writings from a person uh, in the Mediterranean region. It was not some uh, just you know, Israelite author. It was the very words of God. This is what Jesus said about the words that were written. The very words of God. Also, uh, Jesus quotes the Old Testament 78 times. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, 26 times. He quotes from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, and Malachi. And Luke 4, in, in the moment of his deepest 
temptation, among the moments of his deepest temptation in the desert after fasting for 40 days, uh, the enemy is attacking him and and offering things to him. And what does Jesus do in his moments of despair? He said, what? It is written to the enemy. It is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus loved the Bible even when he is tempted by the enemy. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus lays out to the, to, to the group of people who are walking with him on the road to Emmaus, the disciples that were walking with him, and he lays out to them the Psalms and the prophets, the, uh, the uh, Moses, the law and the prophets. He, he lays out to them the scriptures and he tells them all the things in the scriptures that testify about himself. Jesus loved the Bible and connected the dots for them. He began to tell them, hey, from Genesis to Malachi, here's how all of this connects and tells you about me. And then it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And in fact, this is what we need. We don't just need analytical or uh, or just clear-cut arguments about the scriptures. When we approach the words of God, God has to act upon us as Jesus did in Jerusalem that day. As Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, their hearts began to burn within them and they saw the scriptures to be the very scriptures, the words of God. And that's what we need. So when when people are arguing with us or talking to us about the reliability of the Bible, we can give them historical arguments of why we believe this literature to be more than simple literature. We believe it to be the very words of God. We can give them arguments and reasons why, but ultimately we need Jesus to come and open their minds to understand the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures say some highly offensive things to humans. It tells them that there are some things that you can't do. There are some things that your mind cannot comprehend. There are some things that you can't morally do. You cannot save yourself. And that's highly offensive. It takes Jesus opening our minds to see the beauty of that, to see a God who loves sinners and comes to save them single-handedly. Because we always want our hands in that saving work. We always want our our part of making ourselves right. And the Scriptures are not going to do that. They're going to say God gets all the glory. So Jesus opens their mind to understand the Scriptures. Jesus loves the Bible. So we believe through the historical reliability, but more importantly, we believe Jesus opens minds to understand the Scriptures, but we see Jesus, the truth, we see Jesus testifying about the Scriptures. Jesus never calls the Scriptures into question. So to say simply that Jesus is a good philosopher, uh, a good teacher, but not to agree with what He says in the words that He teaches is a logical fallacy. We can't say we say he's a good teacher. We, we want to line up and say, yes, Jesus, you're right. The Old Testament is the very word of God. What about the New Testament? Because when we talk about all Scripture being God-breathed, how do we know about all Scripture, these New Testament books? Okay, 37 books in the Old Testament. That's God's word. Well, what about these 27 books in the New Testament? Okay, what do we say about that? How do we know... 39 in the Old, 27 in the New. How do we know the New Testament is the very words of God? I want, to hear, I want you to hear both Peter and I want you to hear Paul. First, we're going to look at what Paul says in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5.18. If you look at that, 1 Timothy 5.18. So we've looked at Jesus. Now we're going to look at Paul and Peter and see what they say about the New Testament books that were written at the time that they were being writing, being written. 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. Here's what Timothy says, or Paul says, excuse me. And the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer 
deserves his wages. Now get this. Paul is saying, these are the words of Jesus, he is saying that the Gospels, he's quoting the Gospels here, Matthew 23, and I believe Luke chapter 11. Jesus is quote, Paul excuse me, is quoting the Gospels and saying that the Gospels are Scriptures. That's important. The early church looked at the work when they were written, when these works were written, and they viewed what Jesus said to be the very Scriptures, the very Word of God. So they looked to the work of Matthew and the words of Jesus, and they said that these are the very words of God, the Scriptures. He used the word Scriptures. So the same word that's used for the Old Testament, he's using for New Testament words, Jesus' words. Then go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, and then we're going to turn back, and that'll be the last time that we turn. So go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. And here's what Peter says about the words of Paul. Starting in verse 15, actually. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote, according to the wisdom, God, wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Isn't that great to know that Peter said that as well? Even though there's clarity in the Scriptures, there's just some things that are hard to understand. They just are. There's unbelievably clear things, but then there's some things It's just, you know what? God, I'm, it's, just, it's just hard. And, by the way, side note, we don't want to say things that are hard to believe that are really, really clear. We don't want to just say they're hard to understand to be able to avoid them. Because it's easy to say about anything we don't like in the Scriptures. Well, it's just hard to understand when it's really, really clear. Okay, so, sidebar. There are some things in them that are hard to understand with the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Okay, still happening today, by the way. As they do the other scriptures. So the Apostle Peter views the writings of Paul as the very scriptures, the very words of God. That is important for us as well. And I'm going to, at this point, defer to those articles because I don't want to go into big, long arguments about why we can know the scriptures, the, 20, the 39 books and the 27 books are the very words of God. Look at those articles online and they can give you answers to any questions that you may, that you may have. So 66 books, all scripture, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, God has spoken. We accept as authoritative these books, the old and the new testament. So all scripture, that defines all scripture. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 70. But it says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. So what does breathed out by God mean? Well, it means that God spoke to authors through their personalities, through their uh, even cultural identities, and spoke to them exactly what he wanted them to say. So the very words, the original manuscripts that we now have copies and copies and copies of, uh, God told us exactly what he wanted to tell us. The words that are in Scripture are not just the thoughts he wanted us to think. They're the very words he wanted us to hear. So the words in the New... So as we read this, the translations are not inerrant, but God's word is inerrant. 
When, a, when the Greek manuscripts and the Hebrew manuscripts and the few Arabic manuscripts that we have are translated, we believe the originals are without error, but then they're translated into native tongues all over the world, like translations right there. They're translated there. And we believe that the very words that have been spoken are inerrant. Not that this translation is inerrant. There are translation, there are words that uh, when we're translating Greek and into English that we, we try to get it as best as we possibly can. And the er- inerrancy is in the manuscripts themselves. But we believe those words ma- matter. So when we read our Bibles, when we read this translation here, these, each word matters. It really matters. God spoke, and we have the words of God, not just the ideas of God or the general principles of God. We have the very words that he wanted for us and wants for us. The writers put down exactly what God wanted them to put down. What we can tell then about God is that God is a historian. He is in the history. He is a writer of history. He's a writer of the future. He's in the future. He speaks to us in poetry. So those artistic minds out there, God is the original poet and artist. He paints beautiful horizons for us, even broken horizons that he still gets, to, uh, gets through to us. The, the beauty of his handiwork by painting to us a beautiful sunset, seeing beautiful mountainscapes. We see the artistic work of God. When we look into the eyes of other believers, and, or even non-Christians, just the image of God, we get to see God's creative work through just looking at a human and the way the human body works, the way eyes work, the way arms bend, the way joints bend. Yeah, uh, this, is, this is our God. He is artistic. He, is, he knows what He is doing. And in the Scriptures, we see beautiful poetry. We see songs. We don't only see songs, we see... Uh, letters, we see a, a pro- prophetical works, we see apocalyptic literature, we see a God who pieces all these sorts of literature together and speaks in such a way that humans can hear and respond. And he's brought it together in this book, the Bible. He has breathed his word, breathed out by God. Friends, this is, this is really good news, and this is where the gospel comes in. Um, what if God didn't speak? Well, if God didn't speak, there would be no creation. We wouldn't exist. But then God gave us the ability to speak. And we, through our speaking, revealed our sinful hearts and sinful natures. We speak and we communicate to each other. Where does that come from? Well, we're created in the image of God. We have a speaking God. God did not remain silent after we sinned. God continued to speak. He continued to reveal Himself. He continued to pursue those who did not want want to be pursued. God continued to speak. This is the good news of the gospel. We speak accusation against Him. God speaks back to us in a way that is marvelous. He sends the very Word of God. Jesus comes willingly. And He comes to show us our sin and to show us what we deserve for our sin and to show us the magnitude of God's love. And this is God's love for us. While we were still still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the good news of the gospel. God speaks even when He doesn't like the words we speak. God continues to speak, and He has given us His word. This is the very gospel. Jeremiah 23, 29 is a great verse in the Bible. This is what God says about His own word. Is my, not, is my word not like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces? This is why here we are always going to preach God's word. You don't need my word. We need God's Word. And when we come together, we 
come to the scriptures and the scriptures dictate even what I'm going to and what we're going to preach and teach. When I preach, by God's grace, I want you to see that the scriptures are dictating what I'm, I'm preaching. I'm not coming up with some idea on Saturday night of what I feel like I want to preach tomorrow and then uh, getting a bunch of scriptures together and accumulating these scriptures together and then, uh, and then compiling my outline and then getting verses to fit my outline. The scriptures are driving my outline. All scripture, God breathed. What do these things mean? We want to preach the word. God's word. We want to be faithful as we can possibly be to his word. We preach the word. Here's what's Have you ever wanted God to speak? Because in our world, and we're going to get to this here in a second. In the evangelical world today, when we think about God speaking, generally we don't think about the Bible. We think about the still small voice. And we always wonder why can everybody else hear the still small voice but not me? Why does everybody else always hear God speak? And I just don't ever hear God speak. We start to wonder what's wrong with me? Am I not listening well enough? Am I not walking in the Spirit well enough? Why don't I ever hear God speak? And we'll get to that. I promise. But here's what we need to hear loud and clear. God has spoken, and you are never without a word from God, ever. You want to hear God speak? Read your Bible. God has spoken. He has not left us in the dark. He has spoken loud and clear, and it is true, and it is right, and it is, it's there. We can read what He says. What a privilege to be able to read and hear from God. You want to hear God speak audibly? Read your Bible out loud. And you can hear God speak audibly to you. The audible voice of God. Read your Bible out loud. You can hear the audible voice of God. He has spoken. And unless we're firm on that, we'll never be in a position to understand the subjective, still small voice of, of God speaking. Everybody wants to hear the voice of God outside the scriptures. And then when they hear the scriptures, they say, that's not the God I know. Because God says something else to me. Uh-uh. What God says to you is never an authority about what God has said in His Word. And we are not in a posture to be able to understand what God says to me if we don't have the filter of what God has said. Period. So if you want to get to the point ever of being able to understand and hear God speak and to a lesser degree, and yes, the Spirit does. Come, the still small voice gives us direction when we don't know where to go or what to do. And one of the reasons I firmly believe that is because God was a speaking God even in the dark ages when people didn't have the Bible. We, we're so privileged. We have the Bible everywhere. There were still Christians when people didn't have the, like, the Bible in their, you know, they didn't have the Gideon Bible in their hotel. You know, Joseph and Mary didn't get to pull out a drawer in the stable and there was a Gideon Bible somehow. no. Uh, and yet the Spirit was still working without the objective Word of God. But they, in large part, in the dark ages, really were in the dark. We, by God's grace, we have, we're so privileged to have the Bible. So the still small voice, God does speak. The Holy Spirit does come lead and guide and direct our heart and our mind. But we are never in a position to be able to understand that clearly if we don't understand the Word. Because I'm telling you, friends, the lies of the enemy will often sound like the truth of God if you don't know the Word of God. Well, God told me, I just, He wants me to be happy. No, that was the enemy. That was the enemy that told you to do this or to do this 
Well, God told me to leave my spouse. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. That was the enemy. And friends, if we don't know the Bible, Satan is really good at sounding like God. Really good. What I feel begins to become what's most important. What I think is my ultimate authority. Imagine the arrogance of that. My mind, what I think and what I feel is going to determine what I do. Not God, not anybody else, not what anybody else in the world thinks. Me. And it happens everywhere. God breathed. God has spoken. But not only that, it says all Scripture is God breathed and is profitable. Look at that. Profitable. It's profitable. It's good. Here's what that means. All Scripture is profitable. Well, that's interesting. It sounds like what it says. Yeah, it means all Scripture is profitable. There are quabbles about the Word of God. I don't know if you know this, but there are some people that disagree about what some of the Bible teaches. Okay? And here's the wrong attitude about it. Well, anything that's controversial, we just won't talk about it. It's just not profitable to go down that direction. A lot of people don't like talking about hell these days. A lot of people don't like talking about this or that. And it's just really controversial. So we're just going to mark certain things off. Okay, can you lose your salvation? Can you not lose your salvation? We just won't talk about those verses. We won't, uh, we, we just won't, it, we won't go there because we know it brings so much controversy. You know, to what level do the gifts to be expressed or not expressed? Or, 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 or you know, or all these things we can just put in and we can argue about. And so what many people do is just say, since it causes division, it's just not important. You know, just, just focus on the things that we all agree on, and then we can all be happy. You know what that is inherently saying? It's saying, God, you really shouldn't have put it in there like that. God, I wish you wouldn't have put such controversial stuff in there. You really just got it wrong. Instead of all having a posture, hold on a second, hold on a second, hold on a second. Let's humbly approach, and let's all, by God's grace, Embrace the ability to say, you know what, I'm, I am nearsighted, and there's going to be some things I just miss, and I love, oh, I've, I've, I almost reference it every single week, I love, it just so got my heart when Russ said, we come as toddlers, it's like we come as toddlers, I'm just a toddler preacher, I just come as a toddler Christian, we're, just, we're learning, we're growing, we're just, just come as a toddler, but the scriptures are not wrong. And so we want to gather around the scriptures and we want to learn and say that it's all profitable. Profitable for what? Four main things. Here's the bullet points. I'm trying to give us bullet points in order uh, the last few weeks. And it's just kind of been fun. Maybe it's been a little bit more structured for you if you're a note taker. Uh, but number one, here's what the scriptures are profitable for. Remember, they're all scripture, God-breathed, and profitable for what? Number one, for teaching. For teaching. The Bible teaches us what we need to know and learn. It doesn't teach us everything about all truths, but it tells us everything that we need to know and need to learn about God and humans. It tells us what we need to know. Um, as we're learning the Bible, you individually, as you're studying the Bible, it's important for you to know your word, be a student of the word, and study it. Uh, but I also want you to know that it, it's not good if you have interpretations of the Bible that nobody else agrees with. We don't have church historians as our ultimate authority, but we do not arrogantly look back to church history and what the church has believed for 2,000 years and disregard it for our own interpretations of Scripture. We want to lean into other godly brothers and sisters and learn together. So the Scriptures are our ultimate authority, but don't make your own interpretation your ultimate authority. It's the Scriptures. Okay? So we need to make sure that we do learn from those who are around us. 
in those in church history. It's profitable for teaching. So here's what you need to know. Learn from the Bible. Learn how you should think and how you should feel, how you should approach situations in life, how you should approach your family life, how you should work up your vocational life. Learn how you should evangelize. Learn how you should repent of sin and trust in Jesus again tomorrow and today. You, le- you learn things from the Bible. You learn proper thinking from the Bible. And that's what we need to humbly do. God, I want to learn from you. It teaches. What else does it do? Well, it corrects us. Where we think and feel wrongly, we're correct- corrected by the Bible. It tells us, or excuse me, number, number two is reprove. Sorry, reprove. Uh, the Bible tells us where we're wrong. We come into this world and we grow up in homes. My parents are here, godly uh, mother and father, and just like my son, godly mother and father, uh, we're going to teach our children some wrong things. Again, it's unintentional. But when, if I think anything that uh, I grew up in Southern Illinois, Southern Illinois taught me some things. My school taught me some things. My upbringing taught me some things. Everything taught me some things, okay? But the Bible is going to correct the way Southern Illinois brought me up, the cultural thinking of Southern Illinois. My school, Marion High School, even Unity Christian School, and my parents' home. The scriptures are going to correct those things. And I want to always be at a posture to say, reprove me, God. Tell me where I'm wrong. I want to be right. But it doesn't just tell me I'm wrong. Number three, it corrects. The Bible is not simply telling us when we're wrong. It tells us the truth. So we, we should reject falsehood and be corrected by the Bible. To admit you're wrong today is a good thing. It means you're going to be more right tomorrow. It's... We live in such an ego-driven society that for those who have actually accepted absolute truth, they've made absolute truth their idol, and to admit that you're wrong on anything becomes your, your, your gospel becomes being right on everything. And we, by God's grace, need to have a posture to be able to humbly say, you know what, I was just wrong. I was thinking wrong and feeling wrong, and I just understood the Bible wrong, and I was just wrong. I was wrong. Just wrong. Grow in your ability to say, I was wrong. It doesn't mean you have to lose your convictions. But grow in your ability to say, I'm wrong. And fourthly, it trains us in righteousness. Trains us. You want to grow in godliness? You want to grow in Christ-likeness? Read your Bible. Study it. Submit to God's Word. Receive it as God's Word. Andy, you can go ahead and come up. It will train you in righteousness. You want to grow in godliness? Study your Bible. Willow Creek Community Church did a huge, huge, like million dollar study and they wanted to find out what is the number one thing that contributes to spiritual growth in the life of the believer. Spent like $1.2 million or something like that on on this. I'm getting some of the numbers, but it was over a million dollars. And after years of research, millions of dollars, you know what they discovered? The number one way believers grow? Studying their Bible. Now, isn't that interesting? (laughs) All Scripture. Well, what does it do? Verse 17. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This is important. You can be complete for every good work without the subjective, without the still small voice. The Bible tells us we will have the still small voice. But the Scriptures say that the, the Bible says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In this book, you are, can be fully equipped, as the Holy Spirit helps you to understand and grow and learn. You can be equipped for every good thing that God has called you to. There is nothing. Your job, being a mother, being somebody who's single, being a father, being a husband, being a man or being a woman, you can learn how to do that and to be equipped to approach the attacks of the enemy through knowing this word. It equips you for every 
good work. Not just for some good work. Everything that God calls you to now and everything that God will call you to in the future, if you get to know this book, it will help you with every good work God calls you to. It will equip you and will train you for everything God has called you to. This is good news. Um, as I said, God has spoken. And if you have rejected the Word of God in your life and you have preferred your own Word, Sola Scriptura, this passage, would call you to be reproved. The Bible would call you to be reproved. Stop trusting your own word and your own thoughts over what God says. Your whole posture is wrong. Now, your posture won't make you just immediately understand everything in the Bible, but at least you'll submit yourself to God's word. It's a really arrogant position to say, I'm going to reject any truth but what I think. And if you stay there the rest of your life, non-believer, you will have literal hell to pay for that. So reject that, be reproved, and then be corrected. God, you're right. I believe your word. And then the second category, because there's Christians in here. Have you been there? How many times? How many? I can't tell you how many countless times I've said this. That's not the God I know. Anybody done that before? Said that? Read a scriptural verse and just like internally feel like, uh-uh. Okay, that's really wrong. And we need to stop that. We need to always, we may have the posture, I just don't understand, and that's really hard. But never write off God's word and never apologize for it. Is it in the realm of possibility that your thinking and your feeling could be wrong? When you hear the Bible? That you're, is it in the realm of possibility? Maybe my thoughts about God, maybe my feelings about God are wrong. It's okay to admit you're wrong and to submit to God's word and say, God, you're right. I just humbly want to say, I just want to grow. I just want to know and love you. And so wherever you're at, okay, here's your time to respond to the still small voice. Because the Holy Spirit comes and begins to say, hey, you know what? That word that I wrote, not just the word that Jared's ever blabbing on and on about, that word, yes, God's right. And I want you to submit to what God says. So let's pray, and then we'll follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. God knows how to intimately deal with each one of us. Let's pray.